Welcome to the Theology Mom Podcast, hosted by theologian Krista Bontrager. Each week, Krista provides practical teaching to help everyday Christians gain a deeper understanding of their faith. And now, here's Krista. Happy Monday, everyone. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, wherever you are watching me around the world. Thank you for joining me for this week's teaching. I am Krista Bontrager. I am a theologian and public apologist, and this is the channel where I offer teaching about the Bible as well as theological commentary on social issues. And as the year comes to an end, I want to say thank you to each and every person who has partnered with me financially. This ministry, being able to make this podcast and do all the research that's involved in making resources like this is made possible because of you and people like you. I am able to be deployed full-time into this ministry, putting out this content because of you. And you can find out more information about how to support the ministry by visiting the Center for Biblical Unity website, clicking on the donate button at the top of the page. Just go to centerforbiblicalunity.com backslash donate. Today, I'm going to be presenting part three of this teaching series where I have been focusing on the history of the state of Israel, trying to put some historical context around the current conflict with Hamas. And my goal, again, in all of this is to work toward helping people of reason and goodwill to be able to have more meaningful dialogue about these issues. And I want to restate once again that I have great sympathy for all who live in Israel at the West Bank, also known as Judea and Samaria and in Gaza. I am a humble outsider peering in from afar, trying my very best to make sense of a rather complex history and sequence of events, complicated social situations that have resulted from all of that. And I'm sure that there are some errors that I have made along the way. In spite of all of my best efforts, I ask for your forbearance and forgiveness, and I do look forward to your feedback and corrections so that I will not make those errors in the future. Now, in parts one and two of this series, I provided some commentary on the history and region of Palestine, the origin of the state of Israel. And I do want to strongly encourage you to listen to those discussions first before diving in here, especially listen to the monologue that I did at the beginning of part one, and that sets the context for the whole series. Now, in this installment of the teachings, we are going to pick up the story right where we left off last time in the mid-1990s at the Oslo Peace Accords. Now, once again, here is our tour guide, Jewish historian, Dr. Henry Abramson. Where we left off in the last video was the culmination of the Oslo Peace Accords that basically created a system where the Palestinian movement, through something called the Palestinian Authority, would 
establish some initial steps towards an eventual statehood. Jerusalem was kind of set on the back burner for final status negotiations, which ultimately never happened. And the thought was that the Palestinian Authority would slowly develop confidence-building measures that Israel would then reciprocate by giving more authority to the Palestinian Authority. And ultimately, as the name implies, this would result in the two-state solution, Israel and Palestine living side by side. Now, once again, what we are talking about here was an attempt at the two-state solution where Israel and Palestine would live side by side, each with its own governments. That was the hope. That was that was the dream. That was what the, the aim was. And the plan was for the Israeli government to temporarily share power with the Palestinian Authority as the Palestinian Authority then would be working toward becoming a full-fledged government, eventually taking over full governance, infrastructure, policing, defense, and all of that in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. So that's just a recap of where we are. All right, let's continue. When you get to the actual nuts and bolts of the deal, however, it, it was apparent that it would be very, very difficult to actually achieve this. Have a look at this map here, which comes from a pro-Palestinian source, Welcome to Palestine. Unfortunately, they spell the name Israel incorrectly, but otherwise it's basically accurate and depicts the current status quo. What you see in the light yellow color is the West Bank. It is so-called because it is on the West Bank of the Jordan River. Uh, it's known as Shomron and Yehuda uh, in Hebrew. The dark red patches are called Area A in the Oslo Accords. These are areas where you have the densest settlement of Palestinians, including some of the major towns like Nablus and Hebron. And uh, here in these regions, the Palestinian Authority has the greatest uh, power. Uh, it was supposed to be responsible for internal security, which is kind of a euphemism for protecting Israel from Palestinian terrorists, but also public order, which is more like, you know, internal policing and finally civil affairs, which deals with, you know, the setting up of infrastructure and uh, transport and trash delivery and things like that. So these regions were the most Palestinian in terms of their governing authority. Area B involves a little bit of mixed authority, where Israel would be responsible for the security aspects, which is, again, security for Israel, and the PA would hold on to public order, police, and civil affairs. And then in Area C, which is the largest chunk, Israel would be responsible for everything except for the civil affairs of Palestinians who live in Area C. If you have a look back at the previous video in the series, I showed you a map there of Jewish settlements, Israeli settlements within the West Bank, and we're basically dealing with populations that are living cheek to jowl. I mean, on one hill, you'll have a Palestinian village, and on the other hill, with a very small valley in between, you'll have a Israeli village, and it's very difficult to simply block out a whole map that uh, has all this contiguous area for the Palestinians without including also those Israeli settlements, which is an incredibly difficult problem to solve. Okay, now we're really getting into the thick of the practicalities of the problems in Israel. Now, if you recall last time, 
We discussed the growth of Israeli settlements throughout the West Bank, and and this involved places where Israeli citizens, some could be Jews, some could be um, Christians, uh, Druze, and others that would secure property legally through the Israeli governments with permits, permission to build, and all of that in the West Bank. And so we're going to call those the settlements. Well, the Oslo Accords conducted under the Clinton administration in the 1990s further divided the West Bank into a crazy series of living situations with the Israeli government and army having various levels of jurisdiction and control depending on what area we're talking about, whether it's an A, B, or C area. Now, as you can see with um, Dr. Abramson's map here, I'm going to put it back up here for a minute. Uh, this gives us a little hint into the craziness, and this is the area that we're talking about. Just, just look at this map, okay? This is a completely impossible situation. This does not look like a meaningful two-state solution. And this is what the people on the Palestinian side would say. This, this is a crazy map. This is not, does not represent a true and meaningful Palestinian state with continuity of land. This is a bunch of pogots all over the place with different areas controlled by different people and governments and jurisdictions. Now have a look at the second area, which is Gaza down towards the bottom left. Uh, Gaza, after 2005, was completely handed over to the Palestinians. Palestinians control all internal affairs in the Gaza Strip. Uh, but Israel and Egypt, you can see that Egypt, of course, has the lower left border, control all the borders, the air traffic, and so on. Initially, this was far less onerous, but as time went on, uh, Israel and Egypt imposed even harsher blockades on the region for reasons that I'm going to explain shortly. Now, let me expand Dr. Abramson's discussion here just a little bit. In September of 2005, the Israeli government forced out all of the Jewish residents who were living in the Gaza Strip. And now, this was a very controversial decision. There were many Israelis who did not agree with this decision. But those Jewish residents were forcibly removed from Gaza in yet another attempt by the Israeli government to bring about a lasting peace between themselves and the Palestinians. So what they were effectively doing was putting the Palestinian Authority fully in charge of Gaza. So rather than having this crazy map polka dot situation up in the West Bank, or as the Jews call it, Judea and Samaria, the, the Palestinian Authority was now going to be fully in charge of the Gaza Strip. And from the Israeli point of view, this was an opportunity for the Palestinians to exist in a true two-state solution and form their own government. However, in 2008, the residents of Gaza voted 
Hamas in as their government. Now, keep in mind that Hamas's founding documents say that they are a terrorist group with an explicit goal of killing Jews and dismantling the state of Israel. And Israel felt at that point that once Hamas was controlling the government fully, that they needed to take defensive measures. So Israel and Egypt secured their own borders around Gaza by installing fencing around Gaza in order to prevent terrorists from destabilizing their countries. And this is how we arrive at the Palestinian accusation that Gaza is an open-air prison or an open-air concentration camp. And as you can see on Dr. Abramson's map, the citizens of Gaza are effectively fenced in on three sides, and then on the other side is a natural border of the Mediterranean Sea, which is Israel um, controls that space as well, um, and the airspace. However, once again, the Israeli government, in their point of view, tried once again to offer an olive branch toward reasonable citizens of Gaza by allowing a portion of their citizens to leave Gaza during the day in order to work in Israel. Uh, they have special work passes or work permits. Unfortunately, now, in hindsight, um, many Israeli citizens feel like their good graces were taken advantage of because many of the participants in this program in from Gaza who would come into work in Israel were instrumental in gathering intelligence that was used in the Black Sabbath massacre. They took notes about where people lived and, and who was in the army and locations and addresses and all of that sort of thing. So their, Israel, from their perspective, feels like time and time and time again, they've tried to extend grace. They've tried to extend reasonable measures to live peaceably with the people in Palestine and in Gaza. And, and now they just feel like after October 7th, they just had enough. It's just enough. They're tired of trying. And now they're once again in a posture of trying to defend themselves. Let's understand. If I were a Palestinian looking at this map, I would say, what kind of a Meshuggah map is this? Maybe I wouldn't use the word Meshuggah, but what kind of a crazy map is this? How do you expect us to build a state out of this? I mean, two major chunks of land, you have to set up some kind of corridor to travel between them. And even within the West Bank, there's like all these little patchwork quilts. And yeah, that's, that's a really hard, I would think, impossible task to engage in state building based on this. On the other hand, if I were to ask an Israeli, what do you think of the map? This is not the way they would see it. Chances are they would look at something like this. They would say, this is a map of the Arab League member states. And Israel, as you can see in that little red area, it's tiny. Israel is just one little piece of land where the Jews want to establish a national state. We went through the process for that in the previous two videos. And the fact that Palestinians are gaining territory where they currently live in the West Bank and Gaza, you know, 
whatever they get, they should be happy for because Israel is not willing to back up into the sea. Israel insists on its right to exist. And so for many Israelis, particularly on the right wing, the idea of giving any land to the Palestinians in this context where there's so much land that belongs to the Arab states, uh, it just weakens Israel and exposes them to more attacks as a result of terrorism. And that point of view has unfortunately been borne out by much of later history. But before we discuss the Second Intifada, which is hugely important, just reiterate that the Palestinians looking at this map would complain that much of the agreement favors Israel and is a result of the U.S.-dominated nature of the Oslo Accord negotiations. And in fact, this is going to continue through the rest of the three decades until our present day, where the U.S. has really uh, exercised an outsized role in whatever deals are struck between Israel and Palestinian authorities. For many Palestinians, it seems like just another example of Western imperialism simply exercising unilateral decisions upon the Palestinian people. Now, Israel, from the other hand, let us not forget that Israel as a society demonstrates tremendous strength when it comes to external challenges like the current situation where Israelis of all stripes will come together and will fight together to protect their very existence. But otherwise, it is a very vigorous, meaning fractious and divided, democracy. Israel is you know, prone to huge outbursts of protest against one policy or another, as we saw over the summer of 2023, perhaps more than any other time. And trying to bring together this polity to agree in unison on anything other than defense of Israel and its borders, that's a very, very difficult task. The, again, thinking in alternative history, if the Palestinian Authority had demonstrated more confidence-building steps and had exercised greater control over the Second Intifada violence, that certainly would have helped the left-wing of Israel promote the idea of expanding the experiment of the Oslo Accords. Uh, but on the other hand, Palestinians can point to Israelis and say, every time you establish another settlement in the West Bank, which is a essentially a fact on the ground, that is an impediment to the development of a state for Palestinians. So Palestinians complain that you know, you're undermining this process from the very beginning. You're doing some things to please your sponsor, the United States, but in reality, you don't believe in the idea of a Palestinian state. I think this is a very important point for Americans to think about and to consider. I think in light of this analysis and some other things that I've watched and some other commentary I've seen, it is quite possible that we as Americans are part of the problem in Israel. As Dr. Abramson is very diplomatically putting it here, that we have played an outside an outsized role in the peace negotiations. And even though our government may mean well, uh, we may have contributed to making things worse. Just one case in point. From what I understand, 
it seems that America is actually funding both sides of the current war in Israel. We're involved in providing military support and ammunition to Israel. But we're also involved in sending hundreds of millions of dollars to the UN through an organization called UNRWA. And in, in, in 2022, we sent $344 million to UNRWA. You can go on the UNRWA.org website and look up these numbers for yourself. This money is earmarked to help Palestinian refugees. I think a reasonable case could be made that UNRWA funds at best are siphoned off by Hamas and then used to, by Hamas to build their infrastructure. Or some case could be made, I think in some cases, that some UNRWA workers are actually sympathetic to Hamas and actively support them, in which case our tax dollars are funding these UNRWA schools in the name of peace and the UN, but are being staffed by people who are sympathetic to Hamas and to that perspective. So we have to be circumspect as Americans of what our contribution to these complications is as well. Palestinians are also blessed with remarkably ineffective leadership, as we see, for example, after the death of uh, Yasser Arafat, who was much better at fomenting guerrilla attacks on Israel than he was at actually state building. But his successor, Mahmoud Abbas, also known as Abu Mazen, after having elections, simply discontinued elections and has been in power for about 20 years and is widely regarded among Palestinians as completely ineffective. Palestinian frustration with the lack of progress from the Oslo Accords, combined with a provocative visit to the Temple Mount by Ariel Sharon, an important political leader, exploded in Al-Intifada Al-Itifania, the second intifada of September 2000. And this was rather different from the first intifada, primarily in the scope of the violence associated with it. It was especially associated with suicide bombings, like on buses and on pizza shops and other civilian infrastructure in Israel proper. I remember at the time I was on a postdoctoral fellowship at Harvard and I would get up super early and go to my office in the morning and the, the internet, you know, that was back in the days of Alta Vista and things like that. And I would like be constantly refreshing my feed to see if there was any more news from Israel, more news from Israel. And sometimes, you know, multiple times a day, I would hear horrible things about these awful terrorist attacks on Israelis, which involved a very different element, that of the suicide bomber so much associated with Hamas and with Gaza, as we shall see shortly. From the Israeli perspective, the Palestinian Authority was a complete failure in this regard, doing very little to stop actual terrorist attacks, and in fact, in some cases, even having its own security forces participate in them. There are lynchings of Jews in all kinds of places and horrific violence, and 
Israel's response to it was something that they would repeat over the next 30 years. Israel stepped up its attempt to protect itself by creating these security barriers, these concrete walls in some places, fences and others, to prevent the incursion of terrorists from the Palestinian West Bank into Israel proper. Uh, these concrete barriers were also facts on the ground that you know, many felt at the time it constituted a land grab by the Israelis yet again in even pushing forward the 1967 Green Line into Palestinian territories. Secondly, they constituted another example of the humiliations that Palestinians would have to endure when they went into Israel proper for the um, work permits or visiting relatives or what have you. So it was definitely something that increased the security of Israelis, but it exacerbated the tension overall. And at this point, we really have to talk about Gaza and specifically the military strategy that Israel chose to pursue from the period of the Second Intifada through our current day. Israel's military response to much of the Second Intifada has sometimes been called the Dafya Doctrine after a suburb in Beirut, which also had a similar kind of experience. The notion is that if you're fighting an asymmetrical battle, where terrorists will infiltrate your society and attack civilian populations, such as what happened yesterday with two Hamas fighters getting out of a car and shooting at a bunch of people standing at a bus stop, killing, among others, a 24-year-old expecting mother, then, of course, Israel is going to strike hard and fast, and it will be memorable. The basic idea is don't poke the bear. And you would think that people who live next to the bear would get that. But Hamas has not. Hamas has actually tried to take advantage of that by using civilian and humanitarian structures as places where they should establish their bases. We see this in the Al-Shifa hospital, under mosques, under UN facilities, under schools. And they're thinking that, you know, by having these human civilian shields, that will somehow protect them from this doctrine. And Israel has gone to great lengths to try and minimize civilian damages, for sure. They have an entire unit of Arabic speakers, not only Palestinian Israelis, but also uh, those descended from Jewish communities that were expelled from Arab lands after 1948. And the job of this unit is simply to call up people in Gaza and say, hey, we intend to attack this area. Please move south. They employ technological devices like knock alerts to let people know that an attack is forthcoming. And even in the news, you can see Israel broadcasting a lot what they intend to do because they try to limit the impact of the civilian casualties. Now, let me pause here for a second, because if you listen to the news, you will hear people saying things over and over like Israel is engaging in genocide because they're bombing civilians in Gaza. Now, Monique and I will be doing an entire episode on all the things coming up in January on what's called Just War Theory, where we'll make more extended comments about this issue. So I'm just going to briefly touch on it here. But to my knowledge, the Israeli army is the only army in the world that actually tells their enemies where they plan to bomb before they do it. They seem to go overboard to minimize casualties. 
The problem is, is Hamas and these other terrorist organizations set up and do their business and, and have made Gaza into a functional military base with civilians milling around on it because they have built into the infrastructure of Gaza under schools, under UN buildings, under mosques, under hospitals, all of their terror tunnels, all of their tunneling of how they get around and they'll store rockets different places in the basements of these buildings and and behind boxes of UN aid and all of that. So it becomes very difficult if Gaza, especially the northern part of Gaza, is basically an open-air military base with civilian buildings on it, but underneath it is all of the weaponry and infrastructure for fighting a war. And even though the Israeli army telegraphs where they plan to bomb, it seems like it is never enough for the pro-Palestinian advocates. As of October 7th, Hamas started this war and they actively killed and kidnapped and raped civilians. The Israeli army is doing their best to warn people to get away, to let people know where they're going to bomb, and to try their to their best ability to go after military um, targets. But it's hard. It is almost impossible because Hamas has made Gaza into an open-air military base in some ways. And the truth is that, you know, during World War II, the Allies killed millions of civilians before Berlin fell and before Hitler committed suicide and ended the war in Germany. But they had to do that in order to push back the evil and save the Jews that remained and end the war. That's not genocide. That's war tactics of defense. And so again, we'll we'll do a whole episode on just war theory uh, next month. But for for Palestinian advocates to act like these civilians are targeted by the Israeli government and the Israeli army, to me, just seems disingenuous. I, I don't know how to how to tactfully put it any better than that. Hey everyone, quick time out here, then we'll get right back to the program. But I wanted to take a minute to tell you about something really cool. It's called the Commuter Bible. Now I know that many of you are gearing up to start your read through the Bible plan. Maybe you've done it in years past and you just want to have a refresher. The Commuter Bible is a wonderful way for you to listen to the entire Bible in a year. But it's delivered to you as short podcasts that you can listen to them as you commute. They're delivered to you Monday through Friday. It's pretty cool. They have three plans for you to choose from. There's a read through the New Testament plan, read through the Old Testament, or read through the entire Bible. So if you're reading through the New Testament, you got to have a short commute, you know, maybe 15 minutes. You want to read through the entire Bible, a little bit longer commute. Maybe it's a 25-minute commute. 
Either way, all the plans are totally free. You can go check out their website, commuterbible.org. It's so cool. It's the whole Bible in a year as a podcast. It even has little introductory notes to set the context and music to help break up the monotony of the the speaking. It is free on your favorite podcast app. Go check it out, commuterbible.org. But Hamas specifically does everything it can to provoke that kind of response. Part of me remains absolutely stunned. Why would Hamas want to do this? Why would Hamas want to impose such phenomenal suffering on top of what they're already experiencing by provoking an attack from a neighboring country? I can't say that I have come to grips with this at all. It doesn't make sense to me on a human visceral level, I do not understand this urge for self-sacrifice to the point of martyrdom and the willingness to sacrifice one's own progeny. I just can't conceive it. Now, you may think to yourself, well, he's exaggerating. I would like to recommend that you please have a look at a website called Memory, M-E-M-R-I. It stands for the Middle East Media Research Institute. It is a really valuable institute that for decades has simply been watching Arabic language media and uh, providing translations of key segments. And, you know, very little commentary other than, you know, the, the title of the video sometimes gives away where they're coming from. But you have to see this. And I'm going to put a few links of some key videos in the uh, information box so you can go visit it yourself. But, you know, for example, this is Ghazi Hamad, who is an important Hamas official saying very, very specifically that October 7th was not a one-off, that uh, the attack of October 7th will happen again and again and again until Israel is completely destroyed. I mean, there's no ambiguity here. And you see these really bizarre things like these kindergarten plays. Like, I'm sure many of you were involved in these when you were children, right? You know, you, you dress up as, you know, I don't know, trees and... Uh, and forests, and princes, and fairies, and you put on a little play for the parents. But in Gaza, they actually have kids dressing up as soldiers taking Israeli hostages. These are like five, six, seven-year-old kids. And amazingly, the parents are watching and cheering as they take Israelis' capture, and who knows what else they do with them. Uh, and then, you know, there are so many examples of this on memory, I just don't know what to say about it. Mothers, Sometimes mothers of people who are already killed in suicide bombings will come on and say things like, and I'm, I have to use two screenshots here to show you, by Allah, if all my children and grandchildren are martyred for the sake of Allah, it will make me happy. And I got to say, what planet do these people come from? How can these... I'm a father, I'm a grandfather. I cannot conceive how anyone could possibly say that they would want their children or grandchildren, God forbid, to be harmed while harming others. It's beyond the scope of my understanding. And here is the bottom line of where we are right now in our current situation. In spite of the long journey we have taken to get to October 7th, 2023, 
Hamas and those who support Hamas and its related entities, they will not be satiated until every Jew is dead or gone from Israel. Even everyday Palestinians who are more moderate see Israel, the land of Palestine, if you will, they see it as their land still. And they, by and large, do not want to live side by side with Jews under the state of Israel. To illustrate this, I want to play a clip from a video from a channel called The Ask Project, which is a fascinating channel, by the way. You might want to go check it out. And uh, a guy asks just random Palestinians on the street, uh, would you be willing to live side by side with Jews in the land? Their answers are fascinating. Now, uh, they're speaking in Arabic, so you're going to have to wait for the translations. I would suggest um, if you're listening to this on the podcast version, uh, you won't be able to know the translations. You'll have to go to the video version so that you can see the subtitles. Sorry about that. If Israel left, is the West Bank, would there be peace? Is and Gaza, would there be peace? There will be the land is originally ours. It's all ours. Meaning, is what's today Israel? 48 lands. The original and originally the land, Palestine, is all ours. There is no uh, dividing. Okay. Come on. So you wouldn't accept peace. If, that, if the solution was two states, you wouldn't accept it. That wouldn't work. How, how would it work? Two states won't work. If Israel left the West Bank and Gaza completely, would you make peace with Israel? No. Why not? No. Uh, how is going forget all the things that they did? Well, how did, how, how did, how did France no. forget about Germany? How did Poland forget about Russia? Uh, you go on. Even, even, uh, yeah. Would you would you accept? Would you make peace with Israel if you if the West Bank and Gaza became Palestine? Yes, yeah. yeah. And just you. Yeah, I am a human. Then I'm a human being, so I don't have uh, the God merciful merciful then. So you you would accept it? You're saying? Yeah, if they leave us alone. And go out absolutely and never, never, never wish to take our land. Meaning they live in Israel and you live in Palestine? No, there's oh. no Israel. Oh, so wait, wait, they have to leave everything? They have yeah, to leave Tel Aviv, yeah. they have to leave Haifa? Yeah, it's not Tel Aviv. It's not Tel Aviv, it's Tel Aviv. It's our land and they take us, they take it. So the only way you'll make peace with Israelis is if they leave Israel completely. Yeah. It's not. But that doesn't make any sense. This is a reality. So I can't forgive them. 
الضفه الغربيه وغزه كليا هل تقبل السلام تطلع من الضفه الغربيه اه تطلع من الضفه الغربيه وغزه كامله هل هل تقبل السلام انت يعني كيف السلام في ايه امور يعني يعني انه يطلعوا يطلعوا ونقبل انهم يطلعوا so if they completely left left us completely yes we would agree to it ايش حكيت في الاول كيف السلام بده يصير في هيك وضع السلام بصيرش في وضع اسرائيل الوضع اللي احنا عايشين فيه هلقي اسرائيل تطلع واحنا واحنا بنسلم in the beginning because he said something in the beginning because if things were to stay as they are and israel is still in the west bank we cannot have peace yeah. so there could be two states basically فممكن يكون في عندنا دولتين حل دولتين دولتين اسرائيل مش دولة Two states, well, Israel is not a state to co- to call it a two-state solution. Yeah. Okay, so once Israel leaves the West Bank and Gaza, what is Israel? تمام نفترض إن إسرائيل طلعت من الضفة وغزة. شو بتصير إسرائيل؟ شو بتصير إسرائيل؟ شو شو بتصير وضعها؟ What is its situation? إسرائيل هم متشتتين من آ لآ من آ من آ. Israel يعني أنا فلسطين وإسمها فلسطين. From all. أنا عنا بسموها منطقة الداخل. Palestine and the side of Israel, it's the inside of Palestine. They are in our land. It's our land of Palestine. It has no other name. As you can see there, there's various shades of opinion among the Palestinians on the street in these random interviews. But there does seem to be a theme that emerges that Palestinians generally see the land as theirs still. And they want the Jews to leave. If the Jews did stay there, they would Ex- they could only exist as sort of a Arab-ruled state, but they're they're not going for the two-state solution. They just want one state, and they want it to be Palestinian or or Arab rule. And along with this, there's there is a a practice apparently among at least some of the Palestinians that they hand out sweets after there are martyrdoms or bombings or other t- attacks against Israelis. I'm going to play an, a clip. From another video on the Ask Project channel, play a few minutes of it. Uh, again, Palestinian random street interviews, asking them about this tradition of handing out sweets after there's an attack against the Israelis. Why do Palestinians give out sweets after an operation? Because the Israeli army is all the time kill, kill, are killing us. Okay. And uh, there, uh, there is no uh, one in the world uh, standard beside us. Because, uh, yeah, but, but why give out sweets? Because we are very happy in, in our sister. Even, even when it's um, a civilian, like somebody in There's Tel Aviv? No civilian in, in... You know, someone in Tel Aviv. No, 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 no. Tel Aviv is one of our uh, Kuwait cities. Ah, so they're not yeah, civilians. There's no so so a person in a restaurant. Not a there is no uh, uh, nothing uh, called Israel for us for the people. Okay, all Palestinian Palestine is our home. So we uh, consider all of Israeli are uh, armies, even if they never served in the army and they believe in peace with Palestinians. There is no peace uh, with the Israeli people. ليش الفلسطينيين بوزعوا حلو أو حلويات بعد عملية؟ بعد عملية فهمت؟ ليش لأن العملية بالنسبة للفلسطيني هي عملية باعتبار باعتبار أول إشي رامز للشهادة 
because operations first are a symbol of martyrdom. Symbol of sacrifice. It's also from the aspect that a person gives their life for something that is not cheap, but it's for someone that is already hot, wild, but, uh, which is uh, their land. So, but why give out sweets? I am giving my soul or my life for the land, for my land, and this is. The biggest uh, happiness is the biggest joy. After a, uh, um, an operation, a military operation, why do Palestinians, um, a martyr operation, why do Palestinians give out sweets? Because it's our land, it's okay to uh, to be happy. and uh, But it sometimes kills civilians. No, they occupied our land. Hold up, hold up, relax. When it kills, like a bus will blow up. It kills civilians. Uh, okay, but the Israelis occupation killed two civilians. Yeah, but you know, what isn't there any, anything in Islam that says one yeah that's, one thing doesn't equal the other? Uh, Islamic uh, religions say don't kill the women and the boys and the exactly uh, the old people. Yeah, uh, why the Israelis kill the? But I'm asking you, oh, I'll ask Israelis that myself. Yeah, I did actually. You you can. So why would you give sweets if it's if it's you're not allowed to? Uh, the Israelis people do the same things when uh, when they attack the Palestinian people and uh, they uh, they dance on the whole place like Al Aqsa Mosque. So we we allow to us to have it. You know, this thought of handing out sweets as part of you know a cultural tradition of expressing happiness in a difficult circumstance, personally. Find this cultural tradition a little disturbing and does make me ask some questions about deeper structural worldview issues. But I will set that aside for now um, as it pertains to people who live in the West Bank and Gaza. But for now, I just want to begin to draw this series of teachings to a close with a few final thoughts. I want to make three critical points about how Christians ought to respond to the conflict in the Middle East. And I am speaking specifically to Christians, whether you are a Christian who is ethnically Jewish or Arab or whatever, these are principles that I think apply to all Christians. First, I think that Christians have a moral obligation to openly condemn the actions of Hamas and Fatah and all other terrorist organizations who specifically target civilians. Christians should have no part in calling Hamas freedom fighters, um, praising their version of resistance, or celebrating the actions of terrorist kidnappings, murder, or rape. I would even go so far to say, I don't think Christians should be handing out sweets after... Um, and an attack or martyrdom, an operation where civilians are targeted, um, even if it is a cultural practice or tradition. 
I think that is issues like this that I hear social justice oriented Christians who are pro-Palestine when they kind of want to stay silent about these kinds of injustices. I think that is why um, people like me find their posture very confusing. Um, These are activities that I think a simple, straightforward reading of the Bible says that we should have no part of, and yet the social justice pro-Palestinian Christians don't seem to want to draw many definitive lines along, um, about these issues. They don't appeal to God's justice standards as laid out, you know, for example, in Amos 1 and 2. Uh, and if you aren't sure what those justice standards are or how they pertain You can go back and watch my justice series from 2022. I did a four-part series going into all of that. And and, um, some of the war practices in ancient times resemble Hamas war practices. And God condemned it then, and I believe God condemns it now. Uh, Second, I think that all Christians must make every effort to forgive injustices that are committed against our tribal groups and how we have committed these injustices against each other, even in previous generations. You can hear in the clips that I've just played, a lot of the conversation is about things that happened decades ago and or retaliation, they did this, so we did this. That's not how Christians do things, okay? Um, we don't go about the conversation that way. Here is my candid opinion about all of this. There is simply no way to fix the convoluted ethnic tribal blood feud over the land of Israel and Palestine. The Palestinian Arabs are longing for a way for justice to come forward that is probably never going to materialize. And realistically, No human can come along and make this crazy situation come out in a just way. It's simply not humanly possible. There have been so many opportunities lost and wrong turns and retaliation and sin and sin upon sin and justice upon injustice. But even so, every Christian has an obligation to let go of bitterness, embrace forgiveness, and make an attempt to meet each other, especially our fellow Christians, but even our fellow humans, with the dignity and respect that they deserve because of being created in the image of God, and in the case of our fellow Christians, being our brothers and sisters in Christ. Christians, above all people, should lead the way in generous forgiveness, not in this verbal retaliation, this for that, and and they did it, so that means we can do it, and this injustice from two generations ago and all of that. Because this is the scandal of forgiveness when it comes to the Christian worldview. I forgive because Jesus forgives me. When I withhold forgiveness... 
that I am not in reality about the level of my own offenses against a holy God. And at the same time, I know this is a hard word. I get the struggle when it comes to injustices committed by governments and individuals yesterday, last week, or a generation ago. In our own country, we struggle with this. We struggle to let the past go. We have our own ethnic struggles in the forms of slavery and Jim Crow. But at some point, the real Christians in the nation, wherever we may be, must demonstrate God's kingdom to live counterculturally against the sinful culture. And forgiveness in these kinds of situations is part of that. And forgiveness makes no sense if you are outside of Christ. Now, some unbelievers will engage in radical forgiveness because they do see some kind of benefit to it. But for the Christian, forgiveness is a key and core aspect of our faith. We forgive because we recognize our own sin- sinfulness before a holy God. And so we are generous in our forgiveness of others. And to forgive is to let go. I want you to picture having a balloon in my hand and then letting it go. That is the picture of forgiveness. And for this reason, Christians should make efforts to befriend both Muslims and Jews. If the Lord has strategically and supernaturally placed people in your life who are Muslim or Jewish, I hope you will make an effort to get to know them. Invite them to dinner. Be your, be their friends. Why? Because they need to know that Christianity is different. It is something different. It is a way out. It is a pathway out of these kinds of tribal, ethnic blood feuds. This brings me to my third point. Christians must genuinely see each other as brothers and sisters first, not as cultural enemies first or religious enemies. We need to see each other as brothers and sisters first in a real and genuine way. This is what puts Christ at the center. When you're Jewish or you're Arab or you're Muslim friend, they might want to invite you into their dispute. They might want to invite you into their blood feud and to take a side in their debate. You need to know as a Christian that deep in your heart, you got to know it. You got to know it in your knower that you have something bigger and better to offer them, to offer in response to their pain about the Holocaust or about October 7th, that there is something bigger and better than their pain about the Nakba. There is something bigger and better than their pain due to occupation or the events of October 7th. There is something bigger and better than their ethnic identity or their national identity. And that is the good news that the Messiah has come. If you are doubtful about this, 
that I would gently suggest to you, you might not actually understand what real Christianity is about. You might not actually understand the real gospel or why Jesus came. I covered these topics back in October in the the three things that I think every Christian needs to know about Judaism. You need to get to a place of conviction that the gospel is the biggest need that your Jewish friend has, your Arab friend has, your Muslim friend has. Your empathy to hear their pain over this land feud issue will not save them. And ultimately, it will not bring them lasting comfort. But the gospel will. If you have ever wondered, when will there be peace in the Middle East? I'm here to give you a very definitive answer. Never. Peace will never come to the Middle East or America or Israel or Somalia or South Africa or anywhere else there is ethnic strife and a violent history between ethnic groups until individuals place their faith, hope, and confidence in Jesus as the Messiah. It is only when members of warring ethnic groups come into a new identity, into a new reality, an identity and reality rooted and grounded in Jesus as the Messiah, and they become part of a new nation, an invisible nation, Messiah's kingdom, will there be a foundation for peace between individuals. To illustrate this point, I want to end this teaching series from a YouTube channel that I enjoy. Uh, Sergio and Rhoda are residents in Israel. They're a young husband and wife couple, and they post videos often related to the Holy Land and archaeology. But in a recent video, they shared about their ethnic heritage and why being a Christian matters so much to them. In fact, this is exactly how Rhoda and I met 15 years ago. Rhoda's dad organized a meeting at his church between Arabs and Jews. And some of you might not know this, but I'm a descendant from a Jewish family. Well, Rhoda, of Arab. Yet we're both Israelis. And yes, I had to serve in the military. And when we were getting married, people told us, Jews and Arabs have such different cultures, we don't have anything in common. Your relationship is not going to last, it won't work. In fact, because we were from different races, we could not even legally get married in Israel. Yes, uh, Rhoda and I had to fly to Cyprus to get eloped, then come back to Israel and show them the proper papers that we are already married, and only then Israel recognized our marriage. And then after that, we still did a big wedding ceremony with our pastor. On my side, I had about 30 people in total, most of them friends and family members, mom, dad, brother, cousin. But on the other side, Rhoda had mostly family come. About 800 people. Yes, actually it was more than 800, but the guy at the entrance said he stopped counting at 800. But far as we know, we were the first Israeli marriage between a Jew and an Arab girl. But how is this even possible? How could there be a reconciliation between the two groups of people? 
So here's what's interesting. After we got married, Rod and I moved to the US to do things that we thought people do in the US. Yard sale! Yard sale! But it was really because of my job. At that time, I thought there is no way our parents would ever be friends. I mean, they are so different. And without me and Rodo being here, they have no reason to even get together. But then a few months later, after we moved, I get a call from my mom and she says, we had such a great time at Rodo's parents' place the other day. I was shocked. But apparently, they were meeting on a regular basis, despite us not being in Israel anymore. They would celebrate Jewish and Christian holidays together. They became not just friends, but family. In fact, when my dad had a heart attack, Rhoda's parents were by his bedside for days, with my mom the entire time. A few years later, when I asked my dad, how is all this possible, that you guys are friends? And I'll never forget what he said. He said, in Christ, there are no differences. We are all one in Christ Jesus. After a few years in the US, Rhoda and I came back to Israel eventually and have lived here for five years in Nazareth. I got to know her immediate family and her extended family and they are exceptional people. They love God and they love others, including their Jewish neighbors. This, dear family, is the only way out of this mess. Is there a hope for peace? Yes, there is a hope. It is the gospel. It is believing that Jesus is the Messiah. And we can have all of the conversations in the world and and listen to one another's historical grievances between ethnic groups. And we can try to understand people's pain on both sides of the conversation. But the only way out of this mess, the only way out of this Meshugana crazy map with all of the dots and the settlements and the walls and all of that, the only way out of it is the gospel. Only the gospel can bring peace lasting peace, real peace, real comfort and healing, and make cultural enemies into family. Thank you for watching. Good day and God bless. Thanks for joining us. Make sure to subscribe to the Theology Mom podcast and add your review. You can also follow Krista at Theology Mom on Facebook and YouTube. Join Krista for more theology adventures on the All The Things Show, co-hosted with Monique Dusan. Thanks for listening.